morning. How y'all doing? You cannot get rid of me. I'm back. I figure if I come back enough times and I'm in Georgia enough, when you guys become the two-time defending national champions, I can claim fanhood. Is that how that works? You know, I'm a little tired. Don't mind me. But you know, when the nighttime comes, normal people, two in the morning, are doing what? Sleeping, right? I got this little mini blanket here. They're sleeping. Now that's what most of you are doing. But if we're speaking stereotypically, and I know especially in our culture, there's an exception. There's some people that work now, but especially in the ancient world, there were two things you did in the night. Sleep, and what's the other one? There were some people fishing early in the morning or at night. Like I said, there's a few people working, but stereotypically, you're sleeping or you're up to no good. Right? That's what's going on in the middle of the night. And in fact, the worst things maybe are out there in the middle of the night, the more there's a temptation to sort of huddle up, pull the blanket over your head, and just sleep all the more. And just, I'm just going to sleep, and when I wake up, hopefully all that activity will be gone, right? So it's interesting, because Paul understands this. And so when he's writing in Romans 13, for example, right? Um, and I think we have that slide, if we can get that up. There it is. And you, you can read it, you can look at it, I'm not going to read it. But Paul uses that exact analogy for the way he lived. He uses this metaphor. And he, he refers to Christians as people who have been sleeping. And not necessarily in a negative sense, not like, oh, you've been asleep, like, you know, wake up, what are you doing? But kind of. Because his point is, he's, he's referring to this idea of the two ages, right? We're in the present age, and then God's future is aiming towards this age to come when everything is restored. And part of the good news of Jesus is that the future age is broken into the present age, right? And it wasn't available before, but now in the life of Christ, we can start living this bubbling out new creation, Sermon on the Mount type life that looks different from the world around us. And that's something that the world can access and hasn't seen before. We're supposed to look different. And so he says, we are in the night right now. The world, in his metaphor, is in the middle of the night. And it's kind of doing what people do in the middle of the night. No good stuff. And he says, but we as Christians shouldn't be asleep. You shouldn't be laying down slumbering, just waiting for the day to come. He says, we have a different task. It's to get up, to throw off the blanket, to go out into the night. 
And he continues the metaphor. He says, not for carousing and drunkenness and sexual immorality. Not that those things are good, but I don't think Paul's specifically like aiming those. He's still kind of metaphoring here. Is that a word, metaphoring? It is now. Thank you for the support. He's still using a metaphor here. He's like, what we are to do is to get up and live like it's the middle of the day. Live like it's noon, even though it's 2 a.m., 3 a.m., so that the world can look and go, okay, it's still clearly the middle of the night around here, but why are those people living like it's noon? That's a different way to approach life. And so when we're doing that, our life looks radically different in a way that won't often make sense to people in the present age. So in the present age, when somebody hates you or tries to take you down, what's your response? You hit them back. But if you're living by the age to come, if you're living by the daylight in the middle of the night, then your response to someone hating you or cursing you is to love them. Because you're not living by a way that makes sense in the present age. You're not living by the values and success markers of the present age. You're living out a different reality. You're living as though it's the middle of the day, right? And when the world seems to keep dividing and finding ways to be in conflict with one another, we don't recognize or know those divisions. We are a people of every tribe, language, people, group, and nation living in unity together because we're living out the reality of the age to come. And when Jesus says, if you have a banquet, invite those who would normally be left out. The, the marginalized, the outcasts, bring them in because in the age to come, there are no enemies. There are no divisions. There is no haves and have-nots. There is no high and low status. So start living that way now. Does that make sense? So this applies to not just a few things. It applies to every aspect of our life, of our lives together. And that includes giving. In fact, giving is a huge part of that. We're going to talk about giving, sort of new creation giving today. And before you kind of tighten up and be like, oh, here it comes. I knew it. It's Christmas time. They brought in an outside guy to bring on the tithe hammer. <laughs> That's not what I'm talking about. Because it's so much bigger than that. But there are four keys I want to talk about today to be having this new creation daylight mentality so that we throw off the pillow, throw off the blanket, and get up and start living out the middle of the day reality, even though it's still night. And that includes giving. So the, the first key is to rethink our culture. Rethinking our culture. Now, let me, let me put it like this. Last night, I watched a couple football games. Maybe a few of you did too. Um, I know Kendall Knight was at the Georgia game. It was a good game. If you look at those linemen 
And that's, that's kind of Kendall's area, right? He's an offensive line coach. Those are big boys. They don't get that way just accidentally, most of them. They train to do that. You, you got to eat. And yes, eating can become training when you're trying to get that big. They got to lift weights. They got to they gotta work out in a certain way to get 300 plus pounds. They train their whole lives for that. But imagine that they trained for years and then got to the game and right before the game they were told, oh, by the way, we're not actually playing a football game today. Um, you're running a marathon. <clears throat> now, Kendall, you can correct me if I'm wrong here. But I'm going to assume that not many of those offensive linemen would be in a position to complete a marathon right in the moment. See, they haven't trained for it. They've trained for something entirely different, right? They might die. Is that fair to say? Yes. Okay. You have to, in fact, if they were told you have to run a marathon, they would have to undergo a process that, that really, if you're going to train well for a marathon, it takes years, okay? People that are like, I'm going to train for a marathon in 12 weeks, it's like, good luck. That's, you know, you can maybe get your wind up for that, but your tendons and ligaments are not going to appreciate that. It takes years to train for that sort of thing. We are constantly trained and discipled by the world in which we live. See, everything is discipling. It's funny when some people are like, you know, I don't know if I believe in discipling. I don't know if I want to do discipling. <laughs> Too late. You're being discipled constantly, but you turn on commercials, you're being discipled. You go to the mall, you're being discipled. You go to a football game, you're being discipled. You're being trained and formed to think and live a certain way. And we are trained and formed by the world economicists around us. The economy of the world is training us to think a certain way about the value of money, about the value of things, about consumerism, materialism, the way we give all of that. It's training us relentlessly. And then suddenly, we become Christians. And we are like offensive linemen showing up for a marathon. Oh, okay, well, I guess I got to tithe. I'll figure out how to do that and squeeze that in. But see, that's, that's, more, like, that's more like sleeping during the middle of the night and not getting up and living out noon. See, in the, in the Old Covenant, God gave the instruction, the Torah. Sometimes it's called law, but he gave his instructions to teach Israel how to live different, but still by the values of the present age. That's the difference, really, the main difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant is now we're living out the future age, they had God's instructions of how to live as different people in, within the, the rules of the present age. So he would give it, give like this, do like this, don't do this, this is how you be different. 
the age to come unleashes us to live noontime in the middle of the night. So just to sum this up, old covenant living is like getting up in the middle of the night and living with rules. Like you got to be careful, watch out, don't go over there. Bad, you know, bad neighborhood there. Watch out, that's dangerous. Walk down this street, go here. So you'll show you're different, but you're still navigating in the present. Does that make sense? In the night. New covenant is like, get up and just live like it's the middle of the day. That's dangerous. It's different. It looks stupid sometimes. It looks reckless. It looks unwise. But it makes every sense in the world if you realize we're living and trying to demonstrate the new creation and not success in the present age. Are you following me? Okay. So we're trained how to think in the present age. We haven't trained for the age to come. And so we often haven't trained our thinking about our economics, our money, our giving, and it's bigger than just money, but all of that, we haven't, we haven't been trained for it. And we don't often go to the Bible to let it really holistically train us in that area by the age to come. And in fact, quite honestly, I think even a lot of the so-called biblical, um, you know, money systems and things like that, feel to me more like old covenant, like here's how you get out of debt and here's how you be successful and save lots of money. But it's not training us, discipling us how to live like it's noon by the new creation. It's just present age thinking with some Bible verses slapped on it, in my opinion. So there's a passage, Mark chapter 10. You probably know this passage well. It's, the, it's often called the rich young man, the rich young ruler. Um, again, I'm gonna, uh, we'll look at this passage. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Um, let me turn over here. So in Mark chapter 10, this young man comes to Jesus and he asks him, what must I do to inherit eternal life. Eternal life, by the way, is a phrase. It means the life of the coming age. That's what he's talking about. What do I got to do to be part of the coming age? And so Jesus starts him with an answer that would make sense to him. He starts asking him about the Torah, the instruction. Have you followed God's instructions? Have you done this? And he's like, yes, since I was a boy, I've tried to live according to God's instructions. I've, I've been walking around in the middle of the night with the instructions of which streets to go down and which ones to avoid. And then it says Jesus looked at him and loved him. Verse, good night. 21, thank you. That's why I have reading glasses sitting comfortably on my desk at home. <laughs> Verse 21, Jesus looked at him and loved him. And what he's going to do, I think, what's going on here is he's now going to invite him into the age to come. 
and it's going to sound crazy. Give up everything you have, sell it and give it to the poor. His mind's flooded with problems in that scenario. Questions. He can't comprehend it. That doesn't make sense. You know, I got my financial portfolio. And what would that mean for, see, he's been so trained by the world economy that he can't see that as anything other than foolish. And it is foolish. Let's be honest. Right? We could list off, I could start asking, what's the problem with Jesus' plan here? And we could list off 20 things right off the top of our head. Problems that this would cause. Questions. Did Jesus think through this? But Jesus is inviting him into the daylight. But he's been so trained, he looks and he goes... I can't do it. And he walks away. And then, of course, the disciples are kind of freaking out. They're like, wait a minute. Um, who, who can be saved then? What, what's going on here? And Jesus starts to teach him in verses 28 to 31. And he says, he says, look, if you give up everything for my sake and the gospel... You won't fail to receive. You'll get a hundred times back in the present age and the age to come. Now, is this prosperity gospel? Is he telling them if you give up everything, God will make you rich a hundred times over? It's not what he's saying. He's saying because if you give up, and you might have to in the first century, father, brothers, sisters, your family may disown you if you start living like this. He's like, look around though. You have a new family with a hundred mothers and a hundred brothers and a hundred sisters and a hundred homes. Because he's inviting them into this new reality where this is your new family and we're as a corporate people living by a different set of rules, training in a different way. Does that make sense? But the culture will constantly pull us back. I'm not saying the way to be a Christian is go immediately, sell everything you have, and give it to the poor. But that might be what God is calling us to. It's, it's the mentality, right? It's how do we demonstrate the new creation? What does it look like? It's very different. We're not going to have time to delve into all of this uh, you know, deeply today. I'm just giving you kind of the keys and I think you'll have to go back and study this out and think it out and work it out yourself. So key number two, we'll try to go through these quickly here. And I know you guys have been talking about this a lot lately is rethinking community. Is we're not called to be just individual worshipers of God. That's not God's plan. If, if that was the plan, in some very real ways, Jesus would have been unnecessary. Because there were still worshipers of God, at, you know, when Jesus was born, before that, after the temple was destroyed. There were individuals worshiping God. What God did not have is a corporate people that would represent him. 
That's what Christ came to do. He died for our sins, allowing us to enter into him and become God's image bearers, God's representative people, so that the world sees a different reality, a different society, a different way of living, a different way of pr- approaching everything in life. And so now, see in the present age, what's the purpose of money? What does it provide? Security, comfort, leisure. But security is the biggest thing. That's why we want money, right? So we're secure. Jesus flips all that around. And he says, no, in, in the, in, when you're living by the, by the daylight, in the middle of the night, how that's gonna look is whatever you have You're going to take as much of it as you can and give it away to people. Because you don't have to do this in the age to come. So that's the way we're going to live now. That takes a tremendous amount of faith. Right? In Luke 69, he gives a parable and he sums it up. And he says, use your worldly wealth to gain friends. To take care of people is his point. That's... So the the value of money in the age to come in the new creation is not for security. It's to demonstrate faith that God will take care of you even though you're sharing and giving away. You live on the least you can to give away more and more. Doesn't make sense from the present age, but that's not what we're trying to do. That's the challenge, I think, of being a follower of Jesus is we are called to live a reality that we have not fully experienced. That's faith, right? It'd be easy if we could go spend a couple weeks in heaven and then come back and be like, let me, y'all, let me show y'all how to do it. But we haven't been there. So it's nerve-wracking. And that's where I think sometimes we have less faith than we'd like to think. I mean, I do trust God, but I got to have a stockpile of cash over here too. I'm not talking about being unwise. But the age to come looks unwise in the present age. When we rethink community, we see that we have a new family. In Acts chapter 4, what did they start doing? What was their response to the gospel? We see in Acts 2 as well. They started selling what they had, taking whatever they had extra, and giving it to those in need. That was not an activity that was common in the ancient world. It's not like, oh yeah, everybody was doing that. That was, in fact, now... In the culture now, there's lots of charities and lots of people giving. You know where that all came from? The Jesus community. The world didn't come up with that on their own. They copied Jesus. So we have to rethink our culture, our cultural training, rethink community, that we're, we're doing this a different way. We're living this together, this different kind of way. 
And it's not just rules about do this, do that. It's about a whole transformed view of who we are, what we're doing, what are the value of our money and our resources, our time, all of that. What is the value of it? It's to give to those who don't have it so that we demonstrate noon. The third key, rethinking work. I wish we could spend more time on this. We're just gonna um, hit this really quickly. One of the obstacles to this, I think, is, for instance, in Matthew 6, Jesus says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. You know that. It was on the test, right? You know that one. Um, Now, here's the thing. If you go to another country and you go to an embassy, we talked about this last time I was here, but I'll just review. If you go to another country, you go to an embassy, that embassy represents the country, but it's not the country itself. If you think that embassy is the country, that's problematic at many levels, right? The church is representative. It is, should be the embodiment of the kingdom, but it's not the kingdom itself. It's not one and the same. The kingdom of God is the rule and reign of God being enacted in the lives of God's people. Here's where that becomes an issue. If I think seek first his kingdom is equal to the church and it just means seeking first the kingdom means I'm just doing stuff for the church, then what happens those eight or 10 or 12 hours a day when I go to work? There's a big hole there where the only way maybe that I can seek first the kingdom is to invite my coworkers to church for the 107th time this year. (laughs) Otherwise, it's a hole in my schedule. But if I understand that seeking first the kingdom is something I live out, I'm demonstrating noon in the middle of the night wherever I go, now I go to work to be an ambassador. Not just to invite people to church, although that's great, but to live this different reality, to advocate for it in every way at my job. That's at the job level. What about in the home? Well, in Deuteronomy 24, turn over there quickly. I love this concept. We got to hurry because y'all got to get out there. I know you're waiting to go and sign up for the service. It's awesome. I love that you guys are doing that. We did... um, We've been doing something like that. I'm in Texas now, but we've been doing, we call it seasons of service, but for years in Minnesota. And and so it's amazing to see you guys doing it too, where everybody signs up for the whole year and makes sure everything's filled up and, you know, they don't have to keep coming up and begging you to serve in ways. So, amen. Verse 19. I should just increase the font on this, but I stubbornly will die with this font. (laughs) When you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat the olives from your trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. Now, this is again the instruction for Israel, do this here. We're supposed to take these kind of principles and expand them to every area of our lives. And the point is this, 
Don't squeeze every ounce of profit out of your field. That's how the world will train you. Hey, go back, make sure we get everything, leave nothing wasted. God says, no, go over, get what you need, and then leave the rest. But notice what's interesting. He doesn't say, go back, get that, and then give it to the poor. He says, leave it there so that they can come and work. So that you're providing an opportunity for dignity. For somebody to put in the work to provide for their own family. So that somebody, you see what I'm saying? And in this, every household in Israel becomes a center of economic justice. Are we a community that thinks that way? Are we households that think that way? Do we start to look and go, I wonder how I can provide opportunities around. Maybe I don't have to do everything around my house. I don't have to squeeze every dollar I have. I can actually hire small business people to come in and do it. Not because I'm lazy, because I want to provide work for other people. This is part of God's mentality of the new economy. What if a church did that? What if the whole church started thinking that way? How do we provide work? How do we not act according to the world economy? But provide opportunities for people, not just give away. There's temporary times where that's needed, but long-term, that's not a good solution. Gosh, we could do a whole series on that point, right? Let's move on to our last one, though, because we're almost out of time here. And I know you, you want to go sign up, and we don't want to, we don't, I'm not even saying that facetiously. It sounds like I am. I'm not. The final point is rethinking our boundaries. Rethinking our boundaries. In 2 Corinthians 8, and this all flows from the previous points as well, rethinking community. Rethinking all of this, Second Corinthians eight, verse thirteen, Paul says, "Now this is where he's called the Christian community. He's actually calling a bunch of Gentile Christians in a in a far flung part of the world to sight unseen, take up a collection and help a bunch of brothers and sisters in Jerusalem." That sounds normal for us. This was crazy in the first century. This is unheard of. Why would we do anything like that? And he says, our desire, verse 13, is not that others might be relieved while you are hard pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. As it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Notice he takes a rule of instruction from the Torah and expands it to their entire way of giving, living, and thinking. Give. It's not to hold on it. Well, we got to make sure that we're... No. That's a boundary. Rethink your boundaries. That's something that's been trained into you by the world economic system of the present age. Rethink. 
revalue, lift up, do it differently. There's more that could be said there, but I'm going to end with this. Deuteronomy 15. I love this passage, and I think it applies to us as well. God says to Israel, however, there need be no poor people among you. For in the land the Lord your God has given you to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you. If we follow God's system, he says there doesn't need to be poor among you. That seems crazy because the world training tells us if we live by those values, it's going to go terribly awry. And some people will point and go, well, you know what? Look, look, look what those people in Jerusalem did. They were just given to those who had need. And then a few years later, what? A famine hits. They didn't have, they didn't have their stockpile. And now they're in trouble. And Paul's got to go around to the Gentile world and take a collection to help those fools who are giving everything away after the resurrection. It's a good point from the present age. But look at what God was actually putting on display. They were taken care of. There was a quality. They did have enough. They were, suddenly you had these Gentiles around the world collecting and taking care of Jews in, in Jerusalem. What was on display there? Not economic wisdom. Noon. Noon was on display. Maybe not security, but God's new creation. That's what the cross invites us into. As we take communion here, let's remember that every time we take communion, the Bible tells us we are taking a sample of the meal from the middle of the day. It's the meal of new creation. It's proclaiming the future. It's proclaiming that Christ will come back. It's reminding us that we are a new people. That we're once not a people, but we are now one body, taking one meal, representing one God and his one kingdom in this one new reality. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, thank you so much for the North River Church of Christ. Thank you for their courage to live like it's noon, even though it's the middle of the night. Thank you for the ways in which this is already being done, has been done, and such an amazing, generous, cross-shaped church. But we pray for more. I pray that you continue to inspire them in, in new ways to throw off the training of the world and, and to train for that coming time, to start to live out the middle of the day even more boldly, more creatively. And as, as we take communion, 
remind us that this is who we are. This is who we're called to be. And uh, I, I pray that as people go out and start to sign up for the, the service and uh, ways that they can serve, inspire them to try new things and inspire them to be bold and, and sign up and, 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 and enjoy glory in the fact that you are using them in these different ways to serve both here and in the world around us. We thank you for your son, the cross, and the resurrection. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.